Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast, where every week we share a discussion from our webinar Wednesdays. This is when we sit down with Smart Karma Insight Providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. When you find the podcast, click subscribe, and you'll get each new episode as it's released. Let's go to today's discussion. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Smart Karma's Webinar Wednesday. I'm Michael Tegos. Today, I'm excited to welcome Devi Subakasan, who will discuss disruption in Asia's restaurant sector, which is currently struggling to overcome the brutal impact of COVID-19. Devi is an equity analyst with an Asia consumer sector focus. She has been part of buy-side and sell-side institutions and has covered oil and gas, uh, media, textiles, consumer discretionary sectors across ASEAN, India, and North Asia. Devi, welcome to the webinar. Hi, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for hosting this webinar. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a pleasure to discuss this report uh, online as well. Uh, this was part of the Smart Karma original series. And let me start off by saying what was really original about this report. This is something I had not disclosed in the report itself. So most of the insights I have discussed in this report primarily came from my interaction uh, with an independent, established independent restaurant in Singapore, which I have been visiting for nearly 14 years and has now been taken over by a private investor group. So that, that's, that's where the, the entire disruption story kind of unraveled in front of me. And a little prelude to that, uh, my, my understanding of the restaurant sector itself is backed by my own experience running a restaurant, owning it for one week, to be precise, uh, many years ago. So it, it was an exciting, uh, and I would say quite an accelerating experience uh, back then when I was in my early 20s. But what I learned back then from this whole experience of uh, managing the restaurant is that a success formula for a good restaurant is pretty straightforward. You serve good food at right prices, hire good people, have a good location, and a fairly good ambience. So it, it, it's quite simple, but the flip side is that isn't a secret, and too many people think that they can do it right, which means the entry barrier is quite low, and the industry has always been highly competitive. But what we are trying to do in this report, or rather highlight in this report is that contrary to public perception that COVID-induced disruption is hurting this industry, we are highlighting that it, it has happened, it started much earlier, few years earlier in fact, when digital and delivery platforms came in and started disrupting the whole uh, ecosystem started weaning away dying customers away from these restaurants. So this kind of mothballed and has come into the current situation where when COVID struck restaurants, which were kind of learning how to manage the earlier disruption were left with you know, no way how to handle it further. Uh, let, let's, uh, we, we will discuss each of this in detail, but let, let's see how this sector looks per se. 
So globally, uh, this might be the picture quite, you know, uh, for, for most markets that the data given here is for China, uh, where 90% of the market is highly unorganized. We're talking only 10% are the chain restaurants. So here they define chain as any restaurant with more than, any restaurant group with more than 10, minimum 10 outlets. So the entire listed space we are talking about is within this 10%. Uh, which again is further divided into quick service restaurant and casual or sub-dining. So the, the independents dominate the sector, which makes it a highly unorganized sector. So this contrasts very starkly with the delivery platforms, which are highly organized. Most markets have just two or three uh, big players in that segment. Now, how has this digital and delivery platforms disrupted the sector? Let, let, let's look at a real life scenario. Now, if four friends walk into a restaurant for uh, dinner, typically a waiter would greet them, hand them over the menu and take the order for drinks. And if one of us asks for just a, a juice or a, or a soda, you're still gonna pay at least 15 to $20 for four of you just for the drinks. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about a mid to a lower high end, low, I mean, mid to high end restaurant where you would, you know, go for a weekend dinner. Now, once the dinner and once the drinks are served, the, the, the waiter would probably try to take the main order where he would try to guide you towards what they probably think is high margin for them or prod you to try a starter or a dessert or a coffee. And the end, he'll give you a bill which may have five to 10% of service charges. Uh, at least in Singapore, they do, you know, um, some markets like India, they don't, except for the high end. And you may still pay a tip on top of the service charges. But the same order now shifts online to a third party platform. What, what, think of how the scenario will change. First, you're going to lose that 20, 15 to $20 bill from the drinks. And drinks, mind you, is the highest margin of all the orders you place, because typically for four guys, or you know, you would just cost you would just cost the restaurant two to three dollars, or that's five dollars to serve a non-alcoholic drink. So gross margin of ten dollars from that order is right away wiped off. And then there's no zero, there's no service charges, there's no tip, there's quite often there's no dessert or coffee from the same restaurant. And to top it all you're going to pay, the restaurant is going to pay 30% of this bill to the platform. I mean, that's a killer because uh, if you look at our listed space, almost no one makes more than 10% net margin. And here we are saying 30% has to be paid off to the platform, 10% for order aggregation and another 20% for delivery. Doesn't matter if your bill is for $25 or $250. So this is where the, the restaurant industry was uh, not totally lost because you, the customers move not, not coming in for dining and then ordering for takeaway. When you are running a model which is mostly focused on dining and you have to deliver, it, it just wasn't working out for them. Now COVID struck. The first this is a survey result based, uh, taken out in March. Um, I've used it basically to highlight what are the lifestyle changes 
texts that were being, uh, you know, that were coming out. Totally out of health cautiousness, I would say many of us stopped dining out. You know, it's not because we didn't want to, but you know, you just thought, you know, why, why risk yourself? And then in, in many markets, dining was not allowed, only takeaway was allowed. So you stopped dining out because of social distancing. And then because of work from home, you know, you, you, you would anyway, then the, the, the lunch orders, which you used to, the restaurants near CBD got in, that, that's gone away. People started, I mean, you know, there's very little of travel and tourism. And if you look at it, if you, you see the ordering of grocery too went up. So this cha lifestyle change kind of worsened the impact of the existing disruptions, which was already underway. Now, the first few months, starting off from March to April, till, till I would say till last month, and continuing even now, is that your dining demand has declined because off-premise dining is now being increasingly preferred. That's not how we led our lives. We loved going out. We, we saw dining in, into a restaurant as a fun experience, uh, at least in, in Asia, this part of Asia. You know, or you went out with friends, we went out as many families together. But now, you kind of got used to this new lifestyle where you would rather sit at home, watch Netflix, and eat out of that delivered box of, you know, that eat, or the delivery box itself. Secondly, the norms that were set by the authorities, it varied from city to city, uh, reduced the number of seats that you could offer. Either it was the number of seats per table or the number of seats per, uh, based on your square feet. So some of the places they had to cut down up to 30 to 50% of the dining capacity just to adhere to the norms. And again, on top you had uh, no dinner being served after seven, sometimes after nine. So the, the, this kind of um, changing norms was, was, was not something most independent restaurants could handle. And, Catering used to be a big part of their overall demand with no social events or limited social events that that business is totally off. Rents along CBD area is probably the highest in any market. So those restaurants, coffee shops, which rely totally on office goers are totally out of business almost, you know, because uh, the work from Homkins initially out of force and now many offices offering it, you know, there's, there's hardly, uh, you know, the, the footfall is much lower, which I wonder how, how they would, you know, uh, I mean, balance their uh, costs with that. This overall revenue and margin disruption fall, which has occurred due to COVID and the disruptions in uh, operation that happen in between is, is way too much for most independent operators who didn't have who anyway didn't have, uh, you know, deep balance sheet strength. Now, what, what are we seeing going forward or what, what, what's happening right now? Independent restaurants are left with not many options. Either you try to adapt or you close down if you don't have the money or let yourself be taken over. Those who have some kind of bargaining power with their tenants will try to restructure and renegotiate the rent downwards. Rents are obviously falling down. But from what I hear from the industry, the smaller guys aren't getting that advantage. You know, the, the tenants and landlords are still saying, no, no, we would get another guy. You might as well uh, move over. 
the, the larger guys are a little more better placed because even if you look at the listed space we're talking about, uh, be it Young China, they have all plugged in uh, Hydelao, Geomagal, they have all plugged in a variable component into their rental agreement. So, you know, they are better placed in that, uh, uh, you know, how, how the, the whole scenario is adapting. The larger guys also have the advantage of having their own digital and delivery platforms. So if you look at Young China, they have one of the largest loyalty programs, nearly 30% of their sales. The last quarter was online. So even if they get the order online from another aggregator, they're able to use their own delivery channel to deliver it. Uh, they are in a position to relocate to a different space, cut down where the uh, demand is lower, the size of their places. And something I didn't discuss in the report now, uh, and something that has come up later is one of the ways some restaurants are trying to adapt is use technology. So Heidi Lau has always been talking about uh, using their intelligent arms and having a smart kitchen, but now they have gone ahead and deployed well, nearly 900 robotic waiters. It is a little surprising because Heidi Lau is a place which we associate with the kind of um, customer delight and employee interaction, you know, especially the service staff interaction. So for them to go and adopt a wait, robotic waiters, does it make sense? Does it gel with the strategy? But given the current times, I think many, many customers or patrons would think uh, lesser people touching my food will mean, you know, it is more hygienic, lesser chance of infection. So uh, that, that is one way in which restaurants are trying to adapt we would know how it will work out in the long term. Uh, Cost-wise, it may not make too much sense in the near term, but uh, you know, it depends upon how they have negotiated the cost. But in the long term, obviously, that, that should be an advantage. But as, as is, 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 is the way some of the restaurants are going to evolve, it, it fits in with some, some models like Hydela where there isn't too much of specialist cooking, you know, because it's hot pot, you just need to deliver specific things from the kitchen. So that, that, that's the way some of these restaurants are trying to adapt. Uh, alongside, we are talking about competition from cloud kitchens. So it, it's, it's uh, an independent restaurant with a dining focus will find it difficult to compete with a cloud kitchen who have barely have any overheads and they, they probably operate out of an industrial sector uh, where the rentals are very low and they have all the economies of scale in case of the supply chain. So uh, going forward, if, if, if a well-known chef decide to run a cloud kitchen, would I order from him? Yes, because I'm, I'm assured of quality and quantity. I'm assured of quality and the kind of, uh, you know, the price advantage which he will have will probably kind of pass on to the customer. So the, the cloud kitchen scenario is still evolving, but it, it's, it is going to be another threat to industry as we see today. Lastly, we come to this question of, uh, it, it's one thing to say, uh, this, uh, there, is, there is no dispute about the fact that uh, the sector has been impacted by the disruptions. But another question is, has overall demand for restaurants served food shrunk? Does that mean 
does the, has the industry size gotten smaller after COVID? Because, you know, any crisis or not, the demand for food shouldn't change as long as population is same. Uh, it, it just changes how it is sourced and where it is consumed and what is consumed. So the value, um, the, 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 how this gets divided between the participants might change, but the overall pie shouldn't change much. No? So though I am a bit of a view that a part of the market has shrunk in the sense that when we look at data on consumer spent in retail on grocery, which has been in double digit growth over the past several months, beginning from April to July, suggests that custom consumers are continuing to buy more of fresh food, which means they are probably continuing to cook some food at home. It's, it's not you know, cook more now than they did earlier. Likely given they spend more time at home, you know, if you are working from home, you do, you, you have very little of leisure activities outside. It's possible that you spend more time at home and then you tend to cook more at home. But overall, I would think those who were eating out would want to or continue to order from outside or go out and eat. So the market has shrunk, but may not be significant enough to um, you know, uh, dislodge it. But within that, some players will do better versus other given how this value is going to get divided uh, in, in this change scenario. That, that's how we have looked at, you know, who are the winners and losers of this disruption. For now, it's clear there's going to be the organized players are going to garner more market share as more independents close down. They're going to have some cost advantages in terms of, in terms of renegotiating rental agreements. Um, those who have their own digital and delivery channels have better margin protection, but you can do that only if you're a big guy like KFC or like, like McDonald's. And we prefer QSRs given the macroeconomic headwind uh, is in positive. Uh, if, if customers may get more value conscious about how much money you spend on food buying outside from outside, so you, you know they might tend to go for more value. And given the overall health cautiousness still in air, trusted brands brands will have a better advantage over others. So that, that, that's our thinking in how we have uh, sorted the, you know, who who would be the gainers of this disruption in the industry. Now, uh, let's, let's look at the listed space uh, in, in Asia uh, or, or and also players, the global players who are based in Asia. First, we have uh, you know, the global players who are there. You have Young China, Starbucks and McDonald's. Uh, we prefer Young China. Uh, they have been quick to adapt to the changes nearly two-thirds of the restaurants stayed open even throughout the peak of the COVID uh, times in China from February to March. You know, they, they didn't have to close down, they could manage it around. And by April, uh, almost 99% of their outlets were open. Uh, I, I, I don't think anyone has managed to come back so quickly into operations. Uh, they have a very strong brand. No, you know, given the kind of challenges we discussed, I think they are best placed to recover their earnings and revenues ahead of others. You know, so from a 
2021 perspective, I think Young China has a better chance of bouncing back in terms of in operationally than any others. The concern on the stock probably would be growth. They already have nearly 10,000 outlets, uh, but KFC is the most prominent. They're across 1,400 um, cities by now. So the new acquisitions are in the Chinese dining space. Uh, so how will they manage growth? How will the acquisitions work out? If they're gonna be a 5% growth company or can they increase the growth? So that, that's where I think the challenge they will have on valuations, but for now, the valuations are not you know, packing in any kind of high-digit high growth. It's more in line with the established players like Starbucks and McDonald's. And I'm looking on an EV2EBITDA basis. Starbucks in China, uh, the management sounds very uh, optimistic. But I, I find it difficult to accept the argument that by adopting Luckin's playbook, suddenly they can recover their revenues because Starbucks was positioned and the management consistently talked about being the third place. It's all about community. It's all about connecting. And it, it was always seen as the cool place to be seen in. It was not a place where you order food, you know, your coffee in. So it was the location, it was being seen at Starbucks that was more valuable than uh, drinking coffee uh, from Starbucks. I mean, so now they are attempting to pivot the whole disruption by delivering coffee. I, uh, we would wait and see how it works out in China. But in the US, they have, uh, more, uh, they have recovered sales in most places through drive-ins. Uh, so that's that's a different dynamics that's happening there, but not in this discussion. We're specifically looking at Starbucks China. So I would be a little cautious, but management doesn't sound cautious as of now. They, they, I would say they're mildly cautious, more optimistic. But McDonald's China management has been openly cautious about it. They have highlighted how uh, you know the, the 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 economic recovery is slower. Those you know which which they're finding it in their sales recovery, and uh, that they think uh, heightened competition from a local independent Chinese cuisine is giving them a competition. So the, the that 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 that's where they stand. And being a single formats uh, diner, uh, uh, you know, unlike Yum China, which even within KFC they have very smartly adapted localized menu throughout and you know so it's just a different positioning i would think so the we we clearly think young china has an advantage over the other two this is the local cuisine scene Haidilao, uh, jiamiju and siabu siabu here Haidilao and siabu siabu are hot pot restaurants jiamiju uh, is more a concept, you know, actually all three are concept restaurants because they, 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 they don't have multi-format, two hot pot and other one is more pickled spicy fish. Um, but the spicy fish part is doing well, according to the latest results. Uh, they, the Thai restaurant chain, they have managed to grow consistently while, uh, you know, they, they're closing down the, the original Jiamojio restaurant outlets. So, um, Though, uh, though, according to the discussion uh, on disruption, I cannot be positive on uh, restaurants which cannot pivot well to 
delivery because delivery is the mode of recovery. Geomajo in the last quarter, the, the, the latest results which they published after this report was published, has come up and said how they have started delivery for their tire restaurant. Earlier they didn't have restaurant delivery for tire. So they are, to my mind, they are doing what they can to pivot well. And uh, the management, uh, credit to them that during the crisis when they had to raise money, they did a placement and the promoters uh, sold their personal stake and bought uh, shares in the company at the same price. So he injected capital into the company uh, without going to the public. So, you know, uh, there is some sort of integrity, I thought, or and, and show of conviction in the model from the management side. Um, there was a minority investor stake sale in Heidelau during that time. So contrasting to that, I thought Geomigio, uh, in, in some way, I thought, you know, they're, they're doing what they can to pivot better. Heidelau, I, I, I'm not convinced how operationally they can pivot because it was, it's a restaurant which is uh, unlike any restaurant any of you would have ever gone. Uh, I mean, you know, the way they model something which others couldn't copy by giving this offering this customer delight right from the popcorns to the free ice cream uh, you know it's unlike anything you would have ever tried but i i, I wouldn't i cannot see value in uh, getting the same food delivered at home i tried the app it looked like uh, apart from the the soup i'm ordering from a high end grocery store because it's all like mushrooms sliced fish sliced meat uh, all chilled and raw you know so Oh, you would wonder why? Why would I order it online? And then it's it's in no way a, a low price place. It's it's a high end restaurant. If you look at you know the average spend per customer, so pivoting via delivery to my mind doesn't work well for Heidelau. But what they're trying to do is pivot through technology, um, in some way. Uh, that is the smart way. That at least they're trying to do something smart about it. And market has always loved the stock. Uh, so, and um, the, the stock has done excellently well too. So, uh, but operationally and based on my understanding of how this sector is evolving, it is difficult for me to see right now how the, the, the Heidelau can recover its earnings fast enough by next year. It, it, you one probably will have to wait for the impact of COVID led issues to die down. Uh, Café de Coral is a beaten down stock uh, right from the beginning thanks to issues in Hong Kong. Uh, but given its dominant market share there, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's ubiquitous, you know, it's all over the place, it's, it's low value, it's a value for money player. Uh, I, I, feel, I think that has a better uh, chance of recovery in top line. And if they manage well the bottom line as well as the macroeconomic headwinds over uh, you know, the slower economic activity kind of starts eating into customers' wallets. Uh, that, that, that's that's uh, both valuation and this angle made me go positive on the stock. Lastly, the two, the two markets I covered was India and Philippines. Let me first talk about Jollibee Foods. To me, this is like the pride of Asia. You know, this is the only QSR brand that was that has ever made it big. That was totally Asian. All all the other QSR brand, brands that we talk about are totally Western. So here is a purely Asia bread brand. Uh, quite inspirational. How from 
you know, or how they started a family restaurant, made it so big, the, the food is served across the world. What, what kind of went wrong right now is uh, the ambition, the, the ambitious promoters who wanted to go global through acquisitions. So they bought a coffee chain, they bought uh, chains in the US and the, the balance sheet is weak. So if you look at from balance sheet perspective, it, you know, it, it, it's quite on a weak wicket. So the, the, and in a downturn in a market like Philippines, I cannot expect um, more spend on eating out. The, the, those are markets where people eat out uh, as, as a luxury, as, as a special, uh, you know, it's, it's not like you, you don't go into a, see a dining restaurant and just like that, order food every day like you would do in a you know, developed market, although, although the value per meal may be lower. So I, I think the macroeconomic headwinds will hit harder in developing markets uh, and Jollibee could be a near-term victim of that. Though, uh, you know, uh, though, though I would trade the company and its growth, uh, very commendable. Coming to Jubilant Foodworks, that's the most prominent and probably the only listed restaurant stock in India of this size. And it, it's, uh, it, it's Domino's, uh, they have the Domino's uh, license in India and they have managed it superbly well. They have excellent uh, growth track record, margin track record. The operating margins are probably the highest in the industry. And uh, I, I expect the sector consolidation to happen quite steeply in countries like India, where there are very many small independent players with very thin, very weak balance sheet. So organized players like Jubilant will have an advantage and they're very quick to recover from the COVID-led uh, disruptions because they predominantly run on a delivery model. They have very little dining uh, demand. So, you know, that, that, uh, then the stock has always been expensive. And uh, the, the outlook, because of the growth outlook uh, and the high margins, uh, I, I still, uh, you know, would say that I would be positive on the stock. Uh, Michael, if you're still there, uh, I'll be of happy to I take any questions you have. Absolutely, and thank you very much, Devi, for this very thorough presentation. Uh, we have quite a few questions from the audience, uh, but we're also a little bit pressed for time, so I'll try to get through as many as I can. So there are a couple of questions on uh, which uh, segments uh, have been most heavily affected and whether online delivery would be enough to offset the, the drop in dining uh, customers, which I think you have already kind of touched on in previous parts, uh, specifically mentioning the, the winners and the losers of this situation. One question that I wanted to uh, focus on a little bit was, do you see some FMB segments being stronger than others in rebounding once the COVID crisis is over? How, how do you define the COVID crisis being over? You know, if it's life back that, to normal, if it's life back mm -hmm. to normal, as we knew, you know, mm -hmm. and, and all of us go out and eat out, you don't have to wear a mask, you socialize as you normally do, then, then mm -hmm. I would think the, the, the dining focus restaurants should bounce back you know, strongly given where they are right now. So the ones that are worst hit right now should bounce back faster because others, like now the QSR, the quick service restaurants aren't as badly affected as the dining focused ones 
because uh, you know uh, you know that they're low value they have they have most of them have managed to pivot to delivery using their own apps but the standalone restaurants or even the chain restaurants which are focused on dining experience to my mind they should bounce back uh, strongly when even when life goes back to normal so there are two camps on this one camp says uh, even if things go back to normal a lot of customers might just get used to eating at home and prefer staying at home that's a little uh, mm-hmm. dim view of the world you know that at least for <laughs> people, people who are used to a different world but when i when you look at the millennials who are so happy uh, looking on the screen and eating by themselves maybe that's what they would prefer so it's still a little a mute point it depends on how long this covid crisis lasts to my mind if it lasts longer than a year i think a lot of things will change further you know the next generation of kids maybe just i'm not saying generation but just like those who turn from 16 to 18 probably they'll say no it's not cool to go eat out anymore you know or something like that or another pandemic is coming i, I don't know how it will evolve but it, it's a call you have to in your mind you have to decide okay if life is going back to us we lived earlier so that will be something to see yeah and and i think it stresses the point that we really don't know how things are going to evolve and and what the long term impact is as things change day by day and the overall impact is still very hard to measure yes that that uncertainty is what's driving uh, most restaurants out of business you know if they had mm. a, a a fixed view okay in two months things will look good you know then then i can take that hit but if it doesn't happen in two months if it doesn't happen four months what are you supposed to do you know mm-hmm. you and and that the landlord is not you know, not an, not the kindest guy you have you know so uh, <laughs> so and the past 3 months we have not seen such aggressive shutdowns because in most markets uh, developed markets governments have been offering some kind of support you know be it uh, the west or be it in singapore uh, in india they were giving loan moratoriums that means you don't have, you can defer your loan payments so now that it has stopped uh, we will see in the next 3 months of the scene walls no even if you drive down the city you would see many many of the hoardings being taken down many familiar restaurants having shut down for good and since they have removed their banners and posters out oh absolutely there's another interesting question does the shift to digital and to the online business uh, make due diligence on the fmb sector harder how how does uh, an analyst kind of go on to look at a business without having the sort of on the street access of information on dining on you know uh numbers of customers do you think that uh, we will see more situations kind of like the luckin coffee debacle for example that, that's an interesting uh, question <laughs> <laughs> i guess it does make things a little yeah. more challenging all this was possible because of investors okay let me tell you mm. when no promoter has any any intention to defraud you by cooking up numbers but when you mm-hmm. have investors giving you money at negative rates or saying that you keep it now i am a private equity guy i need this only after a few years and then the promoter mm. thinks of invent whatever innovative ways to multiply this you know or or when he can access markets and you know without without so easily and get money 
the, the undoing of the restaurant industry has a lot to do with the kind of funds that flow, went into this industry. You know, this, this, the, there isn't too much of technology here. It, it, the best restaurant you would have gone to is where you love the chef or the kind of food you made, or kind of food, food he made. But instead, when, when you have investors pulling money in, then, then all this complicated, uh, you know, you need to have chains, you need to have, I mean, it's not if you have 100 outlets or one outlet, it doesn't make a difference to me, you know? It makes a difference to the investor. To, to, as, as, as a patron, for me, maybe the best restaurant to go to is that little place which serves, I know, you know, freshly bought locally sourced food. But for investors, you need to have scale, you need to have technology, you need to be doing other things which really doesn't add value to the end customer. This is different from a, a grocery online guy who, you know, who with economies of scale can give you better service. But in, in, in the food business, it doesn't happen that way. You're doing all this manipulations to give greater return to investors. I mean, I'm, I'm sounding like a socialist uh, Marxist, but you know, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But, but having run a restaurant, that's, that's a bit of a personal view, you know? So yeah, I, I, I understand can what you mean. Can you defraud using these systems? Of course you can, given, <laughs> given how we learned so painfully with Luckin. And I guess, yeah, it, it eventually it can catches up, I think, and pretty badly as well. Yeah, but it, it is not an easy well, entry uh, because, you know, uh, you, you trust some brands. It's not like, uh, it's, it's not mm. unlike coffee. You don't try out a new chain of food restaurant that came in, like Jollibee, which is the, uh, which is the food player from uh, Philippines. When they expanded to other markets, they actually went where the diaspora went, you know, where there is a lot of Philippine immigrants there, they first start up there and then by word of mouth, they picked up. So it's not easy to create a, a restaurant chain out of nowhere. So the existing guys have uh, that way a high entry barrier. And Heidi Lau uh, is special in the sense that they mm -hmm. came with a very different, unique proposition. proposition. You know, it, it is not something mm -hmm. that you would get anywhere else. Absolutely. Well, that's just about all the time that we have today. So, Debbie, thank you very much for sticking with us and answering uh, all of these questions. Uh, thank, thank you, everyone, Michael. for being with us today. Do note that Debbie is available for bespoke research requests or premium services. So, please contact your Smart Karma account manager in this regard. And if you have any other questions for Debbie, please email us at research at smartkarma.com and we will pass them along. Thank you, Debbie, very much once again. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Goodbye. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your networks and follow Smart Karma on your social media. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. Thanks so much for listening and see you at the next one.